We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And now New Galaxy Broadcasting presents Inalienable and Free, Voice of the Coalition, a program addressing the grave challenges to human and citizen rights in America and the rest of the world. How can we, the people of Earth, take back the power and privileges granted to us by God and address so significantly in the Declaration of Independence? Our rights are inalienable, that is, given by God and incapable of being taken away from or given by another. These rights are the basis of liberty, the foundation of all life and happiness. The Coalition of Planetary Empowerment is an organization designed to give its members tools and information to empower them personally, in relationships, and in business and employment, but also to give them a voice and the ability to help transform political and corporate governance to support the true needs and desires of people throughout the world. Inalienable and Free focuses on the need for government and corporate business interests to be responsive to the will and desire of their constituents and consumer shareholders. Welcome to Inalienable and Free, Voice of the Coalition. Today, we are going to speak about the single most primary objective of the Coalition for Planetary Empowerment, an organization we are trying to develop to reacquire, maintain, and enhance the human and citizen rights in the United States and the rest of the world. The Coalition is interested in most all of our citizen and human rights, but in our conversation today, we will focus on one. Our number one priority, which fails under one of the three inalienable rights spoken of in the Declaration, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The one inalienable right that we will focus on will be life. But before we do, Don Newsom, who helps produce the show, is with me. Don wears many hats in BBS radio because he is what you might call a very hands-on owner, determined to make everything go right with a very advanced broadcasting technology that allows hosts not only to present their program with a live operator assisting, but helps them promote their program in multiple ways. What's new with the ever-growing, ever-expanding BBS radio, Don? Well, thank you. Thank you for allowing me to open up your show with you. I appreciate that. Lots of new news, actually. Um, gosh, so much so, in fact, uh, but I'm going to keep it short. Okay. <laughs> we did finally get our insurances through Philadelphia insurance companies, um, various E&O insurances and, and uh, writers on the policy, and putting iHeartRadio on the insurance. So, folks, we're not only going to be podcasting through iHeartRadio, we are going to be live streaming through them very shortly. We've we've set up all the streams, got the insurances, met with their requirements, and now we're just waiting for the final go-ahead. So we're going to get two kicks at the iHeart um, system, live streaming and podcasting, which to us is terrific. Uh, we love that. Wow, and, that is incredible. Isn't that nice? Incredible, yeah. Thank you. And, go ahead, please. Well, we finished our... Um, um, negotiations with a few more portals, so we're going to be also podcasting instantly live to uh, tune in, and iTunes, we're going to be podcasting everybody twice to them through iTunes, because we've not only got individual streams, all of the hosts' individual streams going to them, we also have our main station stream, which grabs all the podcasts, so iHeart's gonna or iTunes will be doubling up on them, and we finally managed to uh, get in with TuneIn, and we're added, and we've added Deezer 
com as well. So it to us, that's exciting. The more we can spread out these broadcasts throughout the largest portals that exist, the, the more recognition uh, the host will get. And they deserve it, just like you. Your show is awesome. Thank you. Well, and, thank you. I, I was wondering why early in the morning I hear crowds of people outside my uh, my apartment here, uh, you know, chanting BBS radio, BBS radio. <laughs> oh, so that explains it. <laughs> anyway, uh, getting back to what we're about today, which is kind of serious. Uh, this is a, an ambitious show because we're going to examine the number one priority of the of the Coalition for Planetary Empowerment, an ambitious program to create a U.S. and global membership that can affect change in our political and commercial environments around the world. Our first step is to create an appropriate social network for this task, which we originally to be restricted to the United States, whereas our global dialogue forum will be for use for the democratically configured citizens of the world. And so all of us will be getting together who are members of this organization to try and brainstorm, but also to get out our message to people and to actually get them directly through our the quantity of members that we have to elected representatives, government agencies, corporations, and media. The priority number one, though, unfortunately, I have to speak about this, is the total weapons of mass destruction disarmament, with an emphasis on, in this program on the de denuclearization of the world. Can we do it? Can we denuclearize the world? Because if we don't, this, this whole planet can be basically, the populations of this planet can be destroyed in a number of hours if we get into a conflict with, say, Russia or China, possibly. But the, And worse than that, nuclear winter will prevail. We'll talk about this. But, we're, yeah, we are talking about biological, chemical, and perhaps other types of less publicized energy weapons, all with the capacity of lethal destruction of, 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 the, of human populations. In a nutshell, what, are, what, 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 is, what our objective, objective here is to say is to talk about how we can make a transition to a non-denuclearized world and the destruction of all WMD technology, devices, and materials. So, but we're going to focus, as I say, on denuclearization. But the transition is really important because how are we going to do it? We will discuss that. In case anyone has not flinched recently about the possibility of nuclear war, listen to this because it just happened. The U.S. is pulling out of a nuclear missile pact with Russia. The Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty has been in place for more than 30 years. President Trump accused Moscow of violating the deal. Russia has violated the agreement. They've been violating it for many years, and I don't know why President Obama didn't negotiate or pull out. And we're not going to let them violate a nuclear agreement and go out and do weapons, and we're not allowed to. We're the ones that have stayed in the agreement, and we've honored the agreement, but Russia has not, unfortunately, honored the agreement. So we're going to terminate the agreement. We're going to pull out. Unless Russia comes to us and China comes to us and they all come to us and they say, let's really get smart and let's none of us develop those weapons. But if Russia's doing it and if China's doing it and we're adhering to the agreement, that's unacceptable. So we have a tremendous amount of money to play with on our militaries. 
The treaty has been in force since 1987. Under the pact, Russia and the US required to eliminate nuclear missiles with a range of 1,000 to 5,500 kilometers. But the deal does not include sea-launched missiles. It was seen as a key milestone in ending the Cold War. Russia has repeatedly said it will keep observing the INF Treaty as long as the U.S. does. However, Russian President Vladimir Putin said last year that if Washington were to renounce its obligations, Moscow would do the same. If our American partners exit the agreement, we will give an immediate and reciprocal response. We have complied with the agreement and we will continue to do so as long as our partners do the same. We're joined now by Michael Malouf, former Pentagon security official. Thanks, Michael, for coming onto the programme. Now, the INF Treaty, it was an important step, wasn't it, uh, in ending the Cold War arms race? And now, after more than 30 years, the US is pulling out. How significant is this? Well, I think it's significant in that, for a number of reasons. Number one, it has, uh, uh, it has held... Uh, the peace, if you will, and uh, uh, particularly uh, you know, between Russia and the United States and, and Europe, in fact, uh, for, for that length of time. I think that there's more, more ulterior motives uh, attached to all this. Uh, the, if you listened closely, there has never been mentioned what the violations have been, alleged violations have been by Moscow. Number two, there's only been one meeting between the United States and Russia uh, since last, uh, for, for over a number of years, in fact, and never once has uh, there been any uh, talk of sitting down and discussing alleged violations and trying to um, uh, uh, recommit to uh, adherence on both sides. But number three, there's something more significant to this. The United States, and, and Trump just raised that in his uh, comments, uh, the United States would rather pull out because of China. Uh, right now, it cannot. It does not. It cannot develop new intermediate-range missiles uh, to to uh, confront China, even though China is not a signatory to that agreement. So uh, this is this is adding a whole new ball of wax. And even though even though China was not a signatory to that uh, to that agreement, the United States feels that it's now at a uh, disadvantage uh, in the development of uh, intermediate-range missiles. And that would add one last caveat to all this. It was Bolton, John Bolton, his national security advisor, who really pushed Trump to this decision. And, and uh, Bolton has been uh, in the forefront of, of uh, getting the United States to uh, act uh, unilaterally, not only uh, in, in, this, in this case, but also in dropping out of the, uh, the uh, Iranian nuclear agreement and, and, and putting troops into uh, Syria toward the idea of regime change. So Bolton's a very dangerous fellow, and uh, Trump is not really in charge of his own foreign policy. I mean, if we look at the finger pointing that's going on, Michael, Trump's saying Russia's been violating the treaty, and Moscow has repeatedly accused the US of failing to meet its obligations. Um, but do we know who is really to blame? And like you mentioned before, we don't know what no. those violations are meant to be, do no. we? No, and, and if they were really serious about trying to correct a problem, if in fact there was one, they would have sat down and talked. But it's Bolton does not want to deal with Russia, even though he's going to be going to Moscow, I believe, next week, and he's going to inform uh, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov that the U.S. is pulling out. Now, 
is this is this a, a basis for them now to negotiate a better deal, as uh, Trump would, uh, Trump always calls for? That's a possibility. Uh, uh, but I think the the, the the overriding concern right now is China, and because there isn't the China is not a signatory to that arrangement. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> we saw that, didn't we, in in the clip uh, yeah. of Donald Trump speaking, talking about yeah. that new deal that you've mentioned as well. Um, yes. How likely is it that that new deal will indeed be negotiated between Russia, between China, between the U.S.? Well, let's see what happens as a result of the meetings. I, I don't think they, it's a six-month notice, so anything can happen. There's going to be a meeting of uh, Trump with Putin at the G20 uh, within the next month. Uh, that might be an opportunity for them to uh, sit down and seriously uh, discuss this thing and put off any uh, precipitous action uh, that uh, he just announced. Again, I think he's, he's trying to leverage Russia, uh, and uh, we'll just see what happens. And, uh, but there is six months. It has to be a, it is a six-month notice, and uh, if, he, if he lays it down formally, when he, when, when, if Bolton then lays that down formally when he goes to uh, Moscow, that's when the clock begins. As you've mentioned, Mike, uh, Michael, pulling out of treaties seems to be an ongoing theme for Trump. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. He, he, feels, he, he feels that they're just not operating from a position of strength, and it's America first. All the usual rhetoric that you're hearing. And again, China is the key on this, and, and, and Bolton is uh, of, the, of the mindset that uh, we're, we're uh, at a disadvantage, and he's uh, convinced uh, uh, Trump that, that we need to do something. And I might add that even Defense Secretary Mattis has expressed concerns about alleged violations. But again, nobody knows what those violations are. Is it the, is it the idea of developing a, a new cruise missile? Well, the treaty doesn't prohibit that. And the United States is developing new intermediate uh, missiles and cruise missiles. Uh, but again, they can, they can develop them, they can research, they just can't deploy. Okay. We'll leave it there for now. Michael Malou, former Pentagon sure. security official, thanks very much for coming onto the program. As of this recording, John Bolton has gone to Moscow to talk to Putin about the nuclear weapons treaty, but the problem with China still needs to be resolved. We still do not know what the alleged Russian violations of the Intermediate Ballistic Treaty really are. Before we begin our discussion, let us turn to a preeminent expert on nuclear weaponry, who has just written a book. We basically know of him as the man who leaked the Pentagon Papers. That's N71. It was 1971 when military analyst Daniel Ellsberg leaked the Pentagon Papers to the press. They were a top-secret Defense Department study of U.S. military involvement in the Vietnam War. Their controversial publication blew the lid off what one famous journalist called a bright, shining lie. But few know that in the decade before that, during some of the Cold War's most dangerous hair-trigger moments, Daniel Ellsberg also spent years analyzing America's nuclear weapons policy. His new memoir chronicles that period. It's called The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. And in it, Ellsberg argues very little has changed about what he calls our immoral and insane policies regarding nuclear weapons. Daniel Ellsberg, welcome to the NewsHour. Thank you. The title of your book comes from the famous Stanley Kubrick movie, where a, a rogue U.S. military officer launches an attack on the Soviets, 
And as the, those weapons are flying, it's suddenly revealed that the Soviets have built a doomsday machine, this, this enormous global booby trap that if they're attacked, will kill every single thing on Earth. It is not a thing a sane man would do. The doomsday machine is designed to trigger itself automatically. But surely you can disarm it somehow? No. It is designed to explode if any attempt is ever made to untrigger it automatically. Ah, it's an obvious commie trick, Mr. President. We're wasting valuable time. Look at the big boy. They're getting ready to clobber us. At the time, it was somewhat considered a fantasy idea, but you argue in this book, and this is the title of your book, that that that's really what we have on our hands, is a doomsday machine. Yes, and we had it then. Kubrick got that idea from Herman Kahn, a colleague of mine and a friend of mine at the Rand Corporation, who put it forth as a hypothetical device for deterrence. But he said that would kill too many people. Surely no side, one would build a device Killing like everyone. He said no one would. No one had done it, and no one, he felt, would ever do it. Well, he was mistaken. There was a doomsday machine at that time. We didn't know, actually, till another 20 years about the phenomenon of nuclear winter, that the military targets we were going to hit in cities, and actually in those days, they planned to hit every city over 25,000 in the Soviet Union. And in China, if we were in war with the Soviet Union, we would also hit China. Those cities burning would have lofted in firestorms, not ordinary fires, but as in Hiroshima or Tokyo or Dresden, that would loft the smoke and soot by tens of millions of tons into the stratosphere where it wouldn't rain out. It would be for over a decade and it would lower the sun's temperatures on the earth, the sunshine, by about 70%. That's meaning an agricultural holocaust yes, all as well. The, all the harvest would be killed uh, for years, basically. And everyone, nearly everyone, would starve. In 1961, as a young consultant to the Secretary of Defense, Ellsberg remembers being shocked after seeing a top-secret document estimating how millions of people would be killed with a U.S. nuclear strike on the Soviets. And when I held that piece of paper in my hand, the word in my mind was evil. Evil. This should not exist. This was the operational plan annually for the Joint Chiefs of Staff that had been approved by General Eisenhower. And I thought, there shouldn't be anything in the world that corresponds to this, but there has been then and ever since. Your book documents many of the mishaps and mistakes and near misses that, that many Americans may not be aware of in the last 40 years of our nuclear era, but yet somehow we have escaped annihilating ourselves. Why is that? Look, Will it work for another 70 years? I'm not confident of that. At this very moment, for example, we are making nuclear threats against a nuclear weapon state, a state with nuclear weapons. You're referring to President Trump saying we will rain fire and fury on the North Koreans. Now, fire and fury could include napalm, white phosphorus, a lot of high explosives, which they've experienced before, by the way, in the 1950s. They've been through that, and it's not something they want again. But... Uh, that could quickly escalate. They didn't have nuclear weapons then. There has been no imminent threat of any attack, really, or nuclear attack on a nuclear weapon state since the Cuban Missile Crisis. That was half a century ago. I was part of that, and I have concluded, after 40 years of uh, research, that neither Kennedy nor Khrushchev intended at all to carry out their threats of armed conflict. I believe they both believed in their own minds they were bluffing 
and that they would back off if necessary. And yet, events got away from them. I think we came within a hand's breadth of blowing up the world. So this problem didn't start with Donald Trump, and it won't really end with it. The system that puts everything on the decisions of one man is crazy. Well, that was really rough, rough going there. But I'm going to bring a little bit more rough going since he's talking about actually something that's been somewhat corrected. <laughs> the, the One of the few things that I really like that have happened in this administration, which is that it looks like there's real movement forward now in this uh, denuclearization of, of uh, North Korea. But now I'm going to read an article that I, I've gone over this article before. It was uh, published in May. 16th, 2018. It's called, The Navy Has One Nuclear Missile Submarine That Could Destroy North Korea on Its Own. And so it's sort of interesting here. Uh, meanwhile, the New START Treaty, which came into effect in 2011, imposes additional limits on the number of deployed nuclear weapons. The current plan is to keep 12 Ohio-class subs active at time with 20 Trident IIs each while two more boomers, that is the subs, remain in overall, keeping a total of 240 missiles active at a time with 1,090 warheads between them. Don't worry, restless hawks. Uh, that's still enough to destroy the world several times over. This article that I'm reading is uh, by Sebastian Roblin, and uh, again, it's maybe as one missile that can destroy South Korea. Uh, nine years the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Shiro Honda's Godzilla depicted a monster awakened from the depths of the ocean to wreak havoc on, uh, on Japanese cities. A giant fire-breathing reptile, however, was less horrifying than what it was to come. In less than a decade's time, there would be a dozen re of real undersea beasts capable of destroying multiple cities at once. I'm referring, of course, to ballistic missiles or boomers in U.S. parlance. The most deadly of the real-life kaiju prowling the oceans today are the 14 Ohio-class ballistic missile submarines, which carry upwards of half of the United States, half of the United States nuclear arsenal on board. You do the math, the Ohio-class boats may be the most destructive weapon ever created by humankind. Each of the 170-long vessels can carry 24 Trident II submarine-launched ballistic missiles, which can be fired from underwater to strike at targets more than 7,000 miles away, depending on the load. As the Trident II re-enters the atmosphere at speeds of up to Mach 24, it splits up into eight independent re-entry vehicles with a 100 or 475 kiloton nuclear warhead. In short, a full salvo from an Ohio-class submarine, which can be launched in less than one minute, could unleash up to 192 nuclear warheads to wipe out 24 cities off the map. This is a nightmarish weapon of the apocalypse. So that's that's uh, to give you an idea that uh, nobody's uh, just resting on their laurels here. Uh, we're going to take a commercial break now. We need a rest. Uh, as anyone regularly listening to this program knows, my company is called New Galaxy Enterprises. We specialize in creating media content for throughout the world. Besides working with clients, I've worked on various proprietary and collaborative projects. In the following messages, I want to give you an overview of what we do, followed by two examples of New Galaxy projects. The first is a book I helped develop for a very fascinating author, now Roy 
Boylan. Now, unfortunately, Roy Boylan became a friend of mine, and we later developed a film and book franchise called The Foot Soldier. But Ray, Ray when he fought in North Korea, and he was a veteran, he, uh, he was there physically when the communist Chinese invaded. And so his book, West Side Warrior, talks about um, his, his uh, role um, from the beginning of his life to uh, what he became afterwards, after the Korean War, a crime fighter. The other part is a musical I've been working on. Other part is a song from a musical I've been working with Edgar Ahrens and singer Patricia Welch. I wrote the lyrics to the music you'll be hearing and other songs from the musical is Castle, and I'll be working on the book. Well, anyway, here we go. C2, B3, M49. My company, New Galaxy Enterprises, is a California corporation specializing in the creation of media and promotional content. We are focused on original, innovative projects that are good for humanity. These projects could be nonfiction books or novels, fictional screenplays or documentary content, websites and website content, commercial advertising content for print, audio or video products on the internet, television or radio, musical scores for advertising, television or film, video, audio editing, etc. We want to promote products and projects that support the environment, encourage a healthy experience in living, developing, nurturing and useful technology and offering platforms for positive, socially constructive entertainment or informative, transformative media. Our experience in creating a variety of products like this is rather vast and we offer client-based and collaborative products, as well as the opportunity of active investors to join us in the creation and promotion of proprietary products, some of which are in latter stages of development. For more information, go to www.newgalaxyenterprises.com. Dot com. That's www.newgalaxyenterprises.com. If you're interested in talking to us, just fill out the contact sheet and we will get back with you. The following is from West Side Warrior, the memoir of Ray Boylan, a Korean War veteran and crime fighter. He was there fighting in the world's coldest battlefield when the Chinese communists invaded. Desperate squad members ran past our foxhole yelling, Get the hell out of here! There's too many of them! Again, we saw the Chinese soldiers charge again with opium-induced mindlessness, oblivious of our bullets. Again, we heard the bugles and whistles. Climbing out of our foxhole, Bob dropped two hand grenades behind us, and I threw one over my shoulder. Bullets whizzing by our heads, Bob and I became bolts of lightning flashing across the mountainside. Like a hideous film, desperate scenes like this played out on the Tokong Pass for three days. Sometimes I played in the scene. Sometimes I could only watch and wonder if it were real, or if I'd be suddenly jolted out of my trance by an RKO usher saying, Hey, did you kids sneak in here? To acquire this book, Google westsidewarrior.boylan.kindle. Boylan is spelled B-O-Y-L-A-N. That's West Side Warrior, Boylan, Kindle. We must have known this place before Where waves crash cruelly on the shore
Let's go back to the rather gruesome topic of nuclear winter. The discovery of that possible phenomena took place decades ago. Here's a portion of a retrospective look at the history of that disturbing possibility. Scientists all over the world are finding that beyond the immediate devastation, nuclear war gravely threatens our global civilization and just possibly the human species. In the early 1980s, Carl Sagan gave Americans a new reason to fear nuclear war. With darkened skies, freezing temperatures, perpetual darkness and extreme cold in which all human life might end. It is known as nuclear winter. Nuclear winter added to an already prevailing sense that the superpowers were hurtling toward a point of no return. There are 40,000 nuclear warheads in the inventories of the U.S. and the Soviet Union today. We must ensure it not be used. The implications of nuclear winter are that we shouldn't build more, but we should build less. Now, three decades later, the Cold War seems a distant memory. But the thorny issues raised by nuclear winter continue to resonate. Nuclear winter was kind of an early volley in this battle over the question of human power to change systems and what do you do about it. Administration officials from the president on down have been using hardline rhetoric against the Soviets all year long. The administration's message to Moscow has been that it's not going to be business as usual anymore. Today, in virtually every measure of military power, the Soviet Union enjoys a decided advantage. The Soviet military buildup must not be ignored. If the United States are going to continue their course, then I'm afraid that the world is doomed to be on the brink of nuclear war. There was a real fear in the early 80s that we were in a more dangerous period than we had been perhaps since the, um, the missile crisis in 1962. Tens of thousands of nuclear warheads already faced off. But Cold War calculations pushed the superpowers to build even more. It was a balance with tremendous destructive power on both sides. So we were in this very, very tenuous situation right at the edge of a, of a cliff. It started quietly, but it is picking up steam and maybe gathering strength. The movement, if that's the right term, to somehow bring pressure on leaders of both the United States and the Soviet Union to stop, just stop, the nuclear arms race. That movement was called nuclear freeze. And as its message spread across the nation, it brought together a wide swath of Americans. In order to, to stop this arms race, you first gotta freeze it. One of those was the astronomer Carl Sagan. Imagine a room awash in gasoline. And there are two implacable enemies in that room. One of them has 9,000 matches. The other has 7,000 matches. 
each of them is concerned about who's ahead, who's stronger. Well, that's the kind of situation we are actually in. Sagan was a very effective communicator. I mean, he was a voice for the scientific community in some sense. In 1983, Sagan used that popularity to draw attention to a troubling new scientific finding about nuclear war. Dr. Carl Sagan and more than 100 other scientists have concluded that the long-term effects of nuclear war would be much worse than anyone has predicted so far. We studied a range of consequences of various nuclear war scenarios. Uh, if I may have the uh, first slide, high-yield nuclear weapons explosions. Climate scientist Alan Robach was in the conference audience. It was a very new idea that smoke from fires started by nuclear weapons would go up in the atmosphere, block out the sun, and make it cold and dark and dry at the Earth's surface, having impacts on agricultural production. As Russian counterparts weighed in via satellite link, this view of nuclear war's destructive power took hold. For the first time, we see that the consequences of a nuclear war might be absolutely devastating for nations far removed from the conflict. The initial splash on this story was profound. It was kind of self-assured, even existential destruction. Nuclear winter, even the verbiage is portentous. To illustrate the point, Sagan helped produce a short film showing just how devastating nuclear winter might become. Beneath the clouds, virtually all domesticated and wild sources of food would be destroyed. Most of the human survivors would starve to death. The extinction of the human species would be a real possibility. We have been reading from uh, an article by Sebastian Roblin. There's a little bit more to that article, because we were talking about the Ohio-class submarine, and uh, the, the closest competitor to the Ohio-class submarine is the Russian sole remaining Typhoon-class submarine, larger vessel, with 20 ballistic missile launch tubes. However, China, Russia, India, England, and France all operate multiple ballistic missile submarines with varying missile armaments, and even a few such submarines would suffice to annihilate the major cities in a developed nation. What possible excuse, the author says, for such monstrous nation-destroying weaponry? Now, I would say this. Then he says, the logic of nuclear uh, deterrence, while a first strike might wipe out a country's land-based missiles and nuclear bombers, it's very difficult to track a ballistic missile submarine patrolling quietly in the depths of the ocean. There's little hope of taking them all out in a first strike. Thus, ballistic missile submarines promise an unstoppable hand of nuclear retribution and should deter any sane adversary from attempting a first strike or resorting resort to nuclear weapons at all. At least that's the hope. Well, that's the article. That's the, actually the end of the article. And here's my comments. First of all, it's obvious that every political leader definitively or on their way to running a country with such weapons would have to be on the same page. From a kind of logical point of view, this should be, it should be eminently possible because who in their right mind would want to engage in a war whose end game would be the destruction of all human life for all or all living organisms and damage the ecosystem of Earth, possibly for centuries or even millennia? The answer is nobody will. Let us imagine that in their 
pre-world, pre-Earth existence, if there is such a thing, various would-be government leaders would be given the option. Do you want to be a leader on your planet for peace and prosperity with an unwavering and definitively possible route to the growth and development of humankind in a positive way? Or would you like to be a leader within his grasp, the maintenance of his personal and political power, ultimately, because he can at any time, with just a little bit of support from a handful of his associates, destroy the entire planet? It could be if he gets a little bit anxious over his uh, nation's survivability in the midst of a potential nuclear exchange. Tell me, would anyone in their rational frame of mind want to be a nuclear president, prime minister, or monarch in possession of the ability as a key component of their their task to their country or deal with other countries in the world? Of course, it would be likely granted the state of potential destruction that the destruction of the world might also lead to their personal destruction of their family, friends, business associates, and of course, anything and everything they may have worked for, loved or treasured in their lives. Of course, they might be counting on some very nice and big uh, fallout shelters. Good luck for that. The answer is no truly conscience-driven and rational person would want, would want that fate. Yet throughout the world, people are competing for their ability in countries full in possession of world-destroying technology or by countries in support of enhancing their capacities uh, with such power, their capacities for such things with their smaller nuclear arsenal. They all want to grow bigger. Um, well, on the outside of all this, there are many countries who are willing, waiting eagerly in anticipation of joining the nu- nuclear club, despite the problem of the actual nuclear oligopoly, wanting to take on new members of a still exclusive club. This is Johnny Blue Star, CEO of New Galaxy Enterprises, a media content development company. One of the most exciting projects I've regularly been involved in is the creation of nonfiction books, often collaborating with new authors on a wide variety of topics, either through editing or through writing, sometimes being guided by the client's direction or collaborating directly with the client. In this capacity, I've worked on a book on abolishing the caste system in India a system of selling with integrity and sensitivity towards client and product, several fascinating memoirs, one with a Korean war veteran and crime fighter, another with one of the greatest ventriloquists and television producers in the 50s and 60s. To learn more about New Galaxies, see samples of our work, or talk to us about your project, please go to www.newgalaxyenterprises.com and fill out the contact form. Are you confused about so much information on health issues? Do you find it hard to trust the sources of conflicting advice? Try Dr. Rodier's newsletters and blogs based on the latest information published in the best medical and nutritional journals. There's no charge for subscribing. Just log on to hugorodier.com. That's H-U-G-O-R-O-D-I-E-R.com to do so or to download Dr. Rodier's latest publications. This song by Stephanie Slevin has got a lot of listeners throughout the world. It's called I Know You Love Me The Most, and it's a fun song. I may have marmalade on my toast and you may have your caviar. I may walk to work in my second-hand shoes and you drive in your fancy car. I'm down here and you're up there You're giving me the looks like you don't care But they say love and hate are so very close So I know that you love me the most 
I know by the way you stare at me That deep down inside you care for me You may drink champagne to my cup of tea But nobody freaking cares And you say I ain't the one for you That I'm way down there beneath the view But look at what your poor shake's done to you And nobody freaking cares She took your money and laughed at you And then slept with all your mates and they were laughing too So let's kick her to the curb, yeah, me and you For nobody freaking cares And I know you said bad things of me But deep down inside you care for me For they say love and hate are so very close So I know that you love me the most Took to your drink and your one night stand So please don't judge me by your own bad hand Yeah, stand up straight, just be the man For nobody freaking cares And come down off your mighty horse And take a chance on me and we'll run the course And we'll show the bitch we don't do divorce For nobody freaking cares And I know you said bad things of me But deep down inside you care for me For they say love and hate are so very close So I know that you love me the most Yes, I know that you love me the most Given the gigantic threat, as I said, priority number one, if we are to achieve total nuclear disarmament, we need to develop a coalition of members who consider such mutually assured destruction scenarios extremely untenable and who would wish to end it. But to create leadership like that, the amount of citizen support throughout the world must be astronomical. If we dare to extend the idea of the equality of persons and their possession of inalienable rights from its formulation in the Declaration to the rest of the world, then we must see that the planet will need to be seeded with a great number of citizens with the interest, energy, and power to enliven an entirely new paradigm. I think it's almost amusing to think that the greatest attempts of various countries in leadership nuclear weapons has never stopped beyond being able to destroy the, destroy the Earth a limited number of times. What would it be like if these leaders actually woke up? Uh, one might say, oh, I'm really disappointed. I can only destroy the world three times. Just a few minutes ago, I could have destroyed it several times. Why did I sign that damn treaty? Strangely, those are the only two firings of nuclear weapons. There were only two firings of major nuclear weapons, and that was in 1945. There are two main reasons why none of them have ever woken up, none of these leaders, since the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, despite the massive human suffering that caused and that, that those things caused and virtually the beginning of an unchecked ramp up to nuclear destruction. I'm talking about leaders waking up. I'm talking about the men in charge of giving the orders for the use, development, and activation of these weapons for testing and for war. One of those reasons that they would do this, that they're in the game, is greed. The greed of men who want to, to make and create weapons like this for money without giving any real as to why they're making them at all, except in regards to their devastating efficacy. So we have greed there. The second reason is power, because being in a position like this bestows great power to any individual who wells it. Perhaps there are a few who assume the power, believing that they are responsible enough and well-meaning enough to control its use. The reality is that circumstances, including accidents or 
acts of nature that might activate these weapons are beyond the pale of human control, as evidenced by other near lethal accidents that happened already. I will recall that Donald Trump at one point when he got to the presidency uh, did talk about trying to uh, increase our nuclear <laughs> defenses tenfold. It's lot nice to know that the people in power are around him that, that did say that, that that probably wasn't necessary. Uh, maybe instead of destroying the world 10 or 15 times, we could do it 100 times. But I think that uh, he backed down on that one. Is there any way to prevent the greed factor from continuing? I think there may be, although we should understand great wealth and great political strength often is driven by a lust for power and the visible superiority over other people. This kind of egotism does not really value the title or the wealth as much as the psychological narcissism or grandiose self-esteem involved. But maybe there's a possible trade-off. We could be putting our defenses, defense industries into more lucrative, useful work. I see several avenues where they might excel. And if you look at the psychology of many philanthropists, their motivation might also be based on setting themselves apart from humanity by being a beneficial donor. And egotistically driven or not, we'd like to see, if unavoidable, this egotism being deployed to protect and nurture the planet rather than blow it up. So, if we can make the transition profitable for the defense industries while repurposing many of their products, while restructuring and enhancing the military's function, perhaps we could create a realistic and even desirable transition agenda. This show focused on why we should denuclearize the Earth. The next show will outline our provisional plan to do so. After we say goodbye, we will end with Mahalia Jackson's beautiful version of our most celebrated and loved protest song. Thanks for joining Don Newsom and I on Inalienable and Free, Voice of the Coalition. As we go about developing our new organization, the Coalition for Planetary Empowerment, we hope you will consider the importance of taking part in the electoral processes of your government and asserting the rights you have to vote for the companies you respect and love by casting your ballot as a shareholder or as a consumer with what you buy. We hope soon to make this possible through a social network responsive to your needs to dialogue about your rights as a citizen, but also to be able to effectively act in concert with like-minded colleagues who find representatives of government and business executives will hear your voice and appreciate your message. See you soon. This is Johnny Blue Star. Imagine a dark night. The wind is crisp and cool. The sky cloudless and majestic. Perhaps you are walking alone or with a loved one. Scattered about the night sky are thousands upon thousands of points of light. Look above you, friends of this restless planet. Out there into the night sky, unknown worlds await. Beauty behind imagination, intelligence beyond comprehension, life in its infinite forms and variations, yet all from the same seed, the same fundamental vibration. A cosmic tapestry of infinite light yet each thread unique and indispensable. Look above you, out into the vastness of the night sky, for your destiny lies out there, somewhere among the stars.
Free one day, love. We shall all. 